the Jodcast. Hello, is this thing on? With Megan Argo, Jen Gupta, Stuart Lowe, Tim O'Brien and Neil Young. The Jodcast, January 2010 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the January Extra Edition of the Jodcast. I'm Stuart Lowe and joining me this time are Jen Gupta. Hello. Neil Young. Hey. And Megan Argo in Australia. Hi Megan. Hello. And we've just moved to a new Jodcast studio. Yeah, it's uh, nice and cosy. Um, very, very cosy. Oh, we say studio, this is actually just a small cupboard at the back of the lecture theatre. So. Yeah, we're surrounded by chairs and tables and we can hear people in the office next door if they cough too loudly. We've got your postcards to keep his company, so it's all good. So, coming up on the show this time, we put your questions to Tim O'Brien and round up your listener feedback. But first, before all of that, Tim caught up with Dr Stuart Ayres from the University of Central Lancashire to talk about Sakurai's object. Well, welcome back to the Jodcast, Stuart. I think you did an interview here in 2007 about the National Astronomy Meeting that was held in Preston. did indeed, yes. Well, thanks for agreeing to come back and be interviewed again. This time you're going to tell us a bit about uh, some astronomy, some research that you've been involved with over the last, well, several years in fact. It's an, an interesting thing called, is it Sakurai's object? Sakurai's object, that's right. V4334 Sagittarius. Ah, so it's in, it's in the constellation of Sagittarius. Yeah. Right. So this thing was something that brightened, well, first it's like a star that brightened back in 1996, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So we saw it brighten in 90, well, we saw somebody saw it brighten in 1996, got up to sort of 10.8 visual magnitude. But when we look back on some some past patrol plates and images, we discovered it had been brightening for about six months by that point before anybody noticed. And it sat at that sort of magnitude for three or four years, but the spectrum changed dramatically, particularly infrared. So it spent some time looking like an arcor bore star and some time looking at a carbon star. Lots of molecules formed, uh, rapidly changing over a few years. Initially, I was interested in it because I was a re- classical nova researcher, um, and it looked like a nova just from the way it brightened. But when you looked at the spectrum, it was something completely different. All right. So what's what, what, what's a, what's a, remind me what a nova is then? So a nova is uh, an explosion on a white dwarf in a binary star. It's a very hot explosion. Uh, it ejects enormous amount of, of gas, uh, and it brightens the star brightens by ten or fifteen magnitudes, say mm-hmm. in, in a few hours, and then declines over several months depending on how fast and energetic it is. Mm-hmm. But in this, and, and the spectrum is lots of hot lines. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's all a very different spectrum, in particular, an absence of hydrogen. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Don Palarco at Queen's, Queen's University looked at it and discovered a, a nebula, a planetary nebula. Okay. Um, and both of those put together suggested it's this thing that had been dubbed a born-again giant star. Right. And these are white dwarfs, probably coming from a, s- a star much like the sun but after the sun's left its main sequence finished burning in hydrogen in its core it goes through a giant phase eventually kicks off the envelope of, the, of the, the the giant phase and you get a planetary nebula and at the core of the planetary nebula is a hot star uh, and that gradually cools down and fades away to become a white dwarf mm-hmm. but in maybe 25 percent of cases there's enough hydrogen on the surface to reignite Okay. Uh, um, the first stage is that it, you have, actually have a helium shell flash, and the helium ignites, it ingests all the hydrogen, and that drives the white dwarf all the way back to, to a, a giant phase. 
Uh, mm-hmm. So that that rem- remnant of the old envelope uh, reinflates or inflates mm-hmm. to form this, this new giant star, and that's where the brightening comes from because it's, it inflates so rapidly, and becomes such a large object that it's very very bright. Mm-hmm. So th- this thing looks like a planetary nebula. It has this sort of it has fuzzy a, it has a planetary nebula around it, and then in the middle there's mm-hmm. now a giant star rather than the old hot stars. And actually, there's evidence in the last few years that that we've seen the birth of a new planetary nebula, a second planetary nebula. Oh, right. And when you look out there, you do find planetary nebulae that are hydrogen deficient, so probably have gone through this phase. Right. And even some that have nested. You know, a small planetary nebula inside, the evidence of a very large. Because planetary nebulae aren't visible for more than a few thousand years in mm. their bright phase. So mm. the one we're seeing around this one is is 17,000 years old, which is about what you expect it to be. And then this this new one's forming now. Right. It's also been called stellar revolution while you wait because the thing moves across HR, the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram in, in only a, a few years, two or mm. three years. Mm. It's been a prediction. It's been a prediction of stellar evolution theory for many many years mm. but the prediction always was that it would take a few decades maybe a century to go through this process and we saw it happen in two or three years mm-hmm. so it's already started to change our understanding at this stage because it happens in 25 percent of solar mass stars and below so 25 percent of most stars it's probably very common mm. in that most stars do it but because it lasts a very short time you don't see many of them Right. And that also means it could have an effect, if it does any strange things, it can have all sorts of effects on chemical evolution of the interstellar medium. So, for example, in this star we see a lot of 13 carbon, particular isotope of carbon, much more so than we would see we see in, in, in normal stars. Possibly, Albert Zilster at Manchester at this institute has suggested that it's it's one of the the two main sources of that particular isotope, which has then is incorporated onto other stars and has a big effect upon their, their evolution as well. Mm-hmm. So the star observation is spent several years at magnitude 10.8, but now you won't find it because it's at magnitude 24. Oh, okay. So that's a very, that's a very faint star. Very, very faint star. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've tried to detect it with a very large telescope, uh, you know, to eight meter, which was called the Very Large Telescope, the 8-meter yeah. telescope, and not really been able to get adequate in, detection. In, in Chile. Yeah. In Chile, uh, and also with the Southern African Large Telescope. Okay, so uh, why is it? So what? What brightness would it have been before before nineteen ninety six? Before, before nineteen ninety six, looking flash. back, it's about seventeenth magnitude. So that's okay. That's a pretty faint star, but it's yeah. you know, it's accessible with any decent size a professional telescope. Certainly, the helium flash and and the subsequent expansion take it took it this ten point eight magnitude. We think it probably still is about ten point eight magnitudes. Oh, okay, but there's a dust shroud in front of it, a very ah, dense right. thick dust shroud. You actually see you know, it went this- very very red before it faded away. Right, so this is a material that was thrown off the the white dwarf in this new yeah. helium so this flash. New, this new helium flash ejected yeah. what will become a new planetary nebula. Okay, and it, that that got to a certain when it gets to a certain extent, certain distance from the central star, it cools down enough hmm. for for solid particles to form, and that's what we call dust. It's soot, really. Yeah, and that's that also. So it's car- mainly carbon, or yes, it's, hmm. a, it's a carbonation dust. So dust hmm. comes in sort of silicate forms, where it's got lots of oxygen combined, or in carbonations forms. This is hmm. a carbonation form. Comes probably from the carbon hmm. bearing molecules we were seeing earlier in its evolution, just right. before this happened. So that means we haven't been able to see the star directly for for many years, maybe oh, okay. ten years now. Right. Um, but what we could do for in the early stages, we look at the, the heat of the dust which basically captured all the energy from the star and then re-radiated it in the infrared. And we can use the infrared to measure the, the gradual bright changing of the star and model that. And then more recently, we've used radio observations to look inside the dust because the radio waves come straight through um, the dust shell. So we had, had that idea again a few years ago. and we, we followed that up. And you can see things like 
that radio emission comes from originally came from shocked gas so gas expanding and hitting other gas and heating up that leads to a gradually declining radio emission that's what we saw and then a few years ago uh, 2006 or 7 or so we saw it rebrightening in the radio in the radio and when you work out why that should be you model why that should be it turns out to be because the star is now reheating so as a white dwarf it was a few tens of thousands of kelvin as a giant it was a few thousand two three thousand kelvin but we're already seeing it reheating from, and therefore ionizing material and creating a radio emission back to sort of tens of thousands of kelvin in only a few years mm. and the model there are different models different explanations of why this is happening all uh, theoretical uh, computational models that predict different rates of the reheating and different uh, evolutions over the next 20 years. So I'm expecting to spend my whole career mm. observing this thing mm -hmm. every so often just to see how it changes. And mm. of course, if the dust clears, then we will be, we will be having uh, a real exciting time taking yeah. new data of what's actually happening with this object that's never really been seen. There sure. are one or two other objects out there in, in, in the sky that were, that were you know seen as novae in the past that we now think probably are these sorts of objects and they give us some clue about where it's going. Okay, so is it? Um, so the reason it sort of seems to be getting hotter again, this star in the middle, is because it's shrinking back down to be more like the size of the white dwarf. That's right. So that's gets... right. So if you imagine it as having a, a shell of gas that's 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 blowing away and is gradually becoming detached from the central star, and that that gas is also becoming within the dust shroud is becoming transparent, mm. and therefore you're seeing a hot star in the middle. Mm. So that so what we're seeing in the radio is gas inside the dust shell. Mm that is being ionised and heated up by the central star mm. and therefore getting hotter. And eventually it'll, it'll presumably result in a small planetary nebula which will be expanding with right. a hot star in the middle. And the prediction is basically it retraces its evolution, mm. a slightly different path across the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, and then will really cool down to become a white dwarf. Mm. But at least one prediction suggests it will go through a loop again. It'll mm. go through another mm. uh, loop round the bright part of the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram mm. through a hot phase and back to a cool phase again. And, and those sorts of predictions are the things we're trying to test with these. Mm. The, the so a fairly small number of observations we can actually make. Is this type of evolution something that's predicted to happen for 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 all stars? Really, for um, which it, stars go through this? Do you think? It can Will be the sun go through this? For example, the sun could go through this. So the mm. predictions say, and a, but because the, the difficulty of the predictions is what we're finding out is they're not predicting what mm. we're seeing very mm. well. But they suggest maybe twenty five percent of all stars in that sort of mass range, mm. so the same sort of mass of the sun and below, mm. will go through this stage right. or a stage like this and what is it that means that you know why do some stars go through this helium shell flash and others don't what's i'm not sure we properly understand that i know mm. i certainly don't mm. but it's, it's to do with whether you're able to eject all the material from the envelope so yeah. so a giant star is a very very dense core and a, a diffuse envelope and at some stage it goes through a, a process that ejects that envelope mm. and that's what becomes a planetary nebula mm. and the core becomes the white dwarf mm. In some cases, mm. it, if you look at this, the dynamics and the structure and the mm. energy transport, you can't eject all the material mm. and you're left with a, 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 a denser-than-normal white dwarf atmosphere, right. which can then go through this process. But I don't think Second. we really understand mm. why the details of why that happens. For example, the only way we've been able to explain the speed by which this object's evolved in this case was through by changing the buoyancy within the gas so mm. it's something you know the, the material inside the gas is, is uh, pushed up toward, up into the upper layers mm. by a buoyancy mm. uh, parameter mm. we don't really understand why the buoyancy should be different in some stars to others right. but that may be one of the reasons why you can drive the whole process right. um, 
different in, in, in this particular way. So, so this uh, it sounds like I mean it sounds like a very interesting object. It's almost almost a unique opportunity to observe, as you say, stellar evolution in front of our eyes, which is not something mm. we often get the chance to do. Actually, I mean, what sorts of telescopes have been involved in in studying satellite objects over the years since ninety six? In fact, you should say. I mean, we, we actually put in our telescope proposals uh, the once in a lifetime opportunity to observe this stage. So, let me see what we what we used. I mean, incredible range of telescopes, Spitzer Space Telescope has observed mm-hmm. this object looking at the dust. And we've used the UK Infrared Telescope, which is probably still the best, was at that point, still the best infrared telescope on the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe we've used VLTI. Mm-hmm. Uh, VLT, sorry, not VLTI. Yeah, the VLTI observations as well. A very large array in North America attempting to, to again, image the, the nebulosity originally, the big nebulosity originally, extended, but now we're using it to probe through the dust a number of uh, optical telescopes in the early stages to do the spectroscopy within mm. the first five years or so but of course now because it's a 24th magnitude there's, no, there's nothing mm. we can do that Southern African Large Telescope is an attempt to again mm-hmm. to peer through the dust mm-hmm. and see what's happening there we have uh, monitoring observations with the Liverpool Telescope in order to just monitor it every so often so that we can catch the ob- if, if the dust clears we can catch it as soon as possible and, and follow it, up with it would start to get yeah, brighter again some, at that point and get yeah. some multicoloured observations of that during that phase but also trigger of her observations right. you know, some color things like temperature changes in the dust and, sure. and see the star emerging from the dust if that happens yeah. the other example we have is a, a, what was noted as a Nova Aquila 1909 so it went off 10, 100 years ago and it spent 40 years inside the dust shell so you know, from that example we may never see the star again mm. uh, in, in my lifetime maybe yeah, I mean, does the I mean, Planetary Nebula is some of the most uh, gorgeous uh, structures that there are to look at, even just through a, through a small telescope. Mm-hmm. But certainly, mm-hmm. there's been some uh, spectacular Hubble Space Telescope images of, of Planetary Nebula. I mean, what are the images like of of Sakurai's objects? Sakurai's Planetary Nebula is not a spectacular Planetary Nebula. Mm. It's, it's it, because it's old. It's quite faint, mm. uh, and it, it's quite difficult. It's um, quite a distant object as well, so it's quite difficult to grab. To, to get a good image that gives you mm. a very clear idea of a, the detailed structure. Mm. It's interesting that it appears to have a bit of bipolarity. So one of the things in, in planetary nebula research is how you get, you know, instead of looking like a nice sphere, how you mm. get ones that are extended in a particular mm-hmm. direction. The famous one is butterfly mm-hmm. planetary nebula, for example. And there is still some idea that that might be due to underlining binary star, mm. so two stars going around in the middle. Studies of Sakurai's object, which seems to have maybe a bipolar planetary nebula, suggest it isn't binary star okay. right. um, from all we can see mm. one suggestion alternative suggestion for its origin for why it's done the things it's done in the last 15 years was that it was a, a, a merger of two stars mm. now there's, there's very weak evidence for that and it's probably not a favoured explanation but of course if it was a merger of two stars then it would have been a binary beforehand so, mm. Mm. so it's, it's a difficult thing to get to get a handle on mm. Are there any good uh, predictions of when this thing is going to rebrighten, when the dust shell... Do we know what mass the, the dust shell is, for we example? don't really do have a very good idea of the mass of the dust shell. It turns mm. out if you model this sort of dust shell, you can model where the inner radius is mm. quite well, so where it is in relation to the star, but the outer radius is very difficult to, to, to estimate where that is and therefore how much dust you've got. Mm. So the really thing we've got is an observational estimate that it's going to be a few decades before it clears. Now we'll continue to make observations that allow us to see through and, and follow the star. As I say, 
the reheating at the current brightness might take 10 or 20 years but that is one of the predictions of the different models is how long that is how mm. hot it gets and how mm. quickly and whether it then you know returns mm. cools down the white dwarf cooling track which takes millennia or returns back to the giant phase again in another few decades mm. so there's various observations you can make the hope is that the dust will clear it will expand to a point where it becomes transparent there is some. There was some evidence a few years ago when we were still able to see the dust. The dust has cooled, so it's mm. no longer easily visible with any of the telescopes we have. Right. It's in the sort of gap between the infrared and the millimeter mm. now easily. But when it was still in the infrared, you could still see it in the infrared. There's some evidence it was still adding new dust. Mm-hmm. So as the gas was expanding, it was it was going far enough out to cool down and form dust, and more dust was being being added. Right. And more and more dust was being added, so that may be why it lasts so long. Right. Because although the outer dust disperses. Mm. you're still adding more dust in the mm. dense parts inside mm. well it sounds like um, I mean it sounds like it's going to keep you busy for quite a few years yet, hopefully so honest. yes particularly if as I said the dust clears that'll help us a lot but yeah, uh, yeah so yeah. we'll keep uh, keep watching it and as ever with these sorts of objects you find other examples once you start right. to realise what they look like we've right. found a few other examples right. which we're going to try and uh, you know do more systematic studies of including very old novi that when you look at them in detail actually probably were this sort of object dating back to 1600s right okay yeah. so these are very historical yes. records of yeah. things that, that mm. brightened in mm. the sky yeah mm. people had no idea what they were mm. and this and this is a new really a new idea for what the what those things might that's be right. Oh, that's right. right. and again we've had predictions but we've no theoretical predictions but once we get yeah. some observational idea yeah what they really look like and how they really change you can go back and look at the, the right. details of what's going on well, thanks very much for uh, letting us know all about Sakurai's objects. I should, before we finish, I ought to ask, why is it called Sakurai's object? Why is it called Sakurai's object? Yes, uh, the person who discovered it in the sky is Yukio Sakurai, is a Japanese amateur astronomer. Okay, and these sorts of objects are regularly found. Novi, in general, are regularly found by amateur astronomers. It's not the official name. Right. But because the official name is V4334 Sagittarius, which is a mouthful, uh, Sakurai's object has become uh, commonly used even by the professional astronomers. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's he's one of he's not it's not the only object he's discovered. Oh, so uh, it's a, it's an interesting thing. I mean, astronomy is one of those mm-hmm. sciences which you can actually make a, a yep. significant contribution so, to as a, as an amateur. Yeah, uh, in the old sense of uh, being somebody who's doing it for the interest rather than just being a bit cack-handed, which is what amateur <laughs> might might has come to mean. When it really yeah, doesn't yeah, mean it that. certainly doesn't mean that in this case. That's that right, it just it just means somebody who isn't paid to do that That's job. Right. That's right. In this case, yeah, uh, absolutely vital to it. Excellent. Okay, well, thanks again, Stuart, and uh, we hope to hear from you again on the Jodcast sometime soon. Oh, I'm welcome. To, I'm happy to say it. Talk again. Yes. Thanks for that, Tim. Now, in the past few weeks, as we record this, the American Astronomical Society, the AAS, have been having their January meeting in Washington, D.C., in the U.S., and that was meeting 215, and lots of results have been announced. There have been over 3,000 astronomers in attendance, so plenty of results to, to show on posters and in talks and in press releases. Megan, do you want to start us off with an update? Yeah, so I've been looking at the results coming from the Kepler mission, um, Kepler was launched on March the 6th last year, and it's been observing for, well, taking proper science results for about six weeks now, and they've already found five planets, which they've actually managed to confirm as well. So they find these planetary candidates, and they then go and use other telescopes to actually follow them up and make sure that they are real planets. I think they're actually monitoring a large number of stars, aren't they? It's like 100,000. They are. It's a huge number of stars in one field, I think. So continuously monitoring and looking them looking for the tiny dips in brightness that you get when you get planets passing between us and the star. 
So they're looking for Earth-like planets in the habitable zone around stars, and that's the region where the temperature is just right, that the water's not frozen and it's not boiled off either, so it's actually liquid on the surface. That's sometimes called the Goldilocks zone. Yeah, that's right. So the five planets that they found are all so-called hot Jupiters. So they range in size between about the size of Neptune to a bit bigger than Jupiter. But they all orbit the stars in very, very short periods. They're all between 3.3 and 4.9 days, so they go around very, very quickly. That's much quicker than Mercury, which goes around the Sun in 88 days. One of the planets they found, called Kepler-7b, is very, very strange. Most of them are about the density you'd expect for these large planets like Jupiter, but this one is... um, but this one is about one and a half times as wide as Jupiter, but only about a tenth as dense, which makes it, well, so the astronomers were saying at the meeting, they're sort of comparing it to the density of polystyrene. So if you can imagine a giant planet bigger than Jupiter made out of polystyrene foam, um, that's what they found. It's very bizarre. But the astronomers who found it, they've got no idea why this planet is so peculiar. One of the suggestions is that it could be caused by gravitational tugs from the star. So if the orbit around the star is not quite circular, what you get are tidal forces which actually pull the planet and then squash it when it's in other parts of the orbit so that it actually moves. This is what's happening to Io around Jupiter. It's got a uh, not perfectly circular orbit and lots of other things orbiting around it as well. And Jupiter's a big gravitational mass, so it's pulling on Io, which is actually turning it inside out effectively. It's got lots of volcanoes and lots of the inside ends up on the outside through these volcanoes and cracks in the surface. Um, So it might be that that's causing this planet to be so rarefied, but they're not sure. We don't know, which is exciting. It is, and more exciting results come from WISE. Jen, do you want to tell us about that? Yep, so WISE is NASA's Wide Infrared Survey Explorer, and this was launched in December last year and is planning to map the entire sky in infrared, looking for brown dwarfs, asteroids, not quite sure what else. But the important thing that happened at the AAS is that they announced the first light. So this is the first time that light has gone into the instrument for scientific purposes and they've taken the lens cap off effectively um, and let light in. But yeah, we'll look forward to results from WISE in the months to come. Now it's time for Ask an Astronomer and it's over to Tim. Our first question this month is from Murray, who's in Cheshire here in the UK. And she wrote in to say, Hello, I'm writing to you as there doesn't seem to have been any news about what I saw in the sky early this morning. I was awake between 4am and 6am when there were four enormous flashes across the night sky. Um, She can only describe describe them as a green sheet of light that lit up the whole of the night sky and also lit up the snow. And at the same time there was a loud cracking sound which set off some home alarms. This made me very concerned and anxious as I've never seen anything like this before. Hope you can inform me what this may have been. Well, I got in touch with uh, with Murray actually, and just asked her whether it was uh, whether it was cloudy or not um, when when she uh, saw this, and she confirmed that yes, there was quite a lot of cloud around at the time, um, very in fact very cloudy, and of course it's been snowing here in the UK quite a lot over the last few weeks. So I sort of one one possibility for what, what effectively were described as green flashes is something called the green flash, quite well known in astronomy. It's possible to see this effect when the sun's um, setting or sometimes rising. Uh, And basically it's an effect that results from uh, refraction of light through the Earth's atmosphere. So as the the sun goes down and you're seeing it through a lot of atmosphere, it's looking quite red because the uh, the blue light's been scattered out of the way. Um, But as the body of the sun sort of disappears behind the horizon, for example, then what happens is the red light becomes progressively blocked and some of the greener 
or indeed bluer light that's been sort of refracted through the atmosphere, curved around through the atmosphere, becomes the dominant colour. So you get this sort of brief, short-lived so-called green flash effect, which is quite hard to spot, doesn't happen all the time, and but, but worth looking out for. Clearly this wasn't the case here, because she's talking about the whole of the sky lighting up, and it was cloudy, it wasn't really an effect associated with the sunset. My uh, best guess for this actually is that it was it was the effect of lightning basically in snow clouds and there's certainly been reports of this um, before is that there's some sort there's a big lightning storm effectively uh, there's things called thunder snow which is a, a, a thunderstorm where the uh, where the instead of falling as rain you get uh, the water falling as snow and when lightning flashes there basically because of the effect of that on the snow cloud from the snow clouds you get this sort of green um lighting up of the of the snow clouds above you in in that effect so that seems that's my best guess at least and whether the thunder actually caused the uh, caused the house alarms and things to go off is is probably probably the explanation there okay the second question is from robin patterson who uh emailed in to say that they'd been looking at uh, various discussions and looking at sci-fi movies and things talking about what happened to people when they uh, if somebody went outside in space without a space suit um, would they actually freeze when they went outside and and also whether they'd freeze if they went outside on on Mars for example without a spacesuit because of course the uh, the temperature is much colder out there so this is the idea that you go out in space or you go out on Mars uh, it's very cold and therefore you're frozen you're immediately frozen and there's various uh, various sci-fi movies that show this uh, show this sort of effect well, I mean, the interesting thing is that, uh, that, that actually that's, that's not the case. Um, you wouldn't get frozen, certainly not immediately like that. Um, and one thing to think about is, um, is, is what temperatures we're talking about and where the, where the heat would go to, um, from your body. So you've got to, if you're going to cool down when you go into a cool place, you've got to lose heat from your body. And there's basically, um, a number of mechanisms for doing that. Um, one of them is, uh, is radiation. So the fact that you're warm means that you radiate away energy in the form of electromagnetic radiation, um, the wavelength of, w of which depends on your temperature. So you've probably all seen um, pictures of a, a dark room, somebody in a dark room taken with a, an infrared camera and you see somebody glowing, whereas in invisible light you wouldn't, you wouldn't see anything. So we, at the temperature that the human body's at, most of the radiative energy comes out in the infrared part of the spectrum. So one way of losing energy is through that. Um, radiation process. Uh, another way of losing energy would be through conduction. For example, if you were to, um, you put a hot body in contact with a cold body, um, then the interaction between the atoms can actually transmit energy from atom to atom and therefore take away uh, energy from the hotter object and transfer it into the colder object. Another way is convection, which is, for example, the motion of uh, a gas um, that's in contact with a, with a, with a hotter body or a hotter region of gas. So, so for example, in your home, in your room, you might have things that we generally call radiators, big lumps of metal that we pump hot water through generally. Um, they're not really distributing energy largely by radiation, though it's largely by convection. So they get hot. The air in the room is in contact with them. That gets warm. And then because it's warm, it becomes buoyant, expands, it rises. And that means the hotter goes up, more cooler air comes in to be in contact with the radiator and then get warmed up and again rise. So you get this sort of convection motion, this sort of hotter rising and then distributing its energy and then cooling, coming back down, getting warmed again. Same process happens in the sun, part of the interior of the sun, the energy generation just below the surface is via convection. 
the radiation from the core of the sun um, travels out and then and heats the outer regions. They get hot, they rise, and as they come nearer to the surface, they cool and they fall back down. So you get this sort of boiling motion that transfers the energy from the interior to the outer surface. Uh, in the case of the human body, that might happen with, you know, just being in contact with the earth, for example, the atmosphere, um, and it's, it's increased, the effect is increased by the motion of a sort of forced motion of air, like, for example, wind. So if there's a wind, you get this wind chill factor because you're constantly bringing cool air into contact with your body to be warmed up and then taken away again. And the other possibility is, uh, is, is evaporation. So, um, just by, so for example, that's why we sweat. So we put uh, uh, liquid out onto the water, out to the surface of our skin, and that, that, that evaporates. And the change from a liquid to a gas um, actually causes, that phase change causes us to, um, to uh, lose heat. So we're taking energy out of our body by that process as well. So there's those sorts of radiation, convection, um, conduction and evaporation that, that would apply. Now, if you sort of went out into space, then in terms of your heat content of your body, uh, it's basically a vacuum, not entirely, but it's a clo close to a vacuum. So a lot of those processes, say the, the conduction and the convection processes, require you to be in contact with something. So they're certainly not going to apply. So there's going to be some element of, of evaporation. And in fact, you know, that's an increased effect because there's a very low pressure in an, in a near vacuum. The pressure is very low. And so actually you get the, the water vapor uh, would boil very quickly. Pan of water boils more quickly if you take it to high altitude. Um, so in fact, you know, the water vapor on your tongue and in your mouth and in your nostrils and so on, and your eyes and so on would boil away quite quickly. Um, and that would have a bit of a cooling effect. So you might get a sort of frosting on your, on your tongue and in your mouth and so on. If you think about the radiation aspect, then basically, um, you would start to radiate away energy. And the, and the interesting thing is that actually the rate at which you'd radiate energy away from being in say an environment where the where the ambient temperature around you is is absolute zero minus 273 degrees celsius um zero degrees kelvin the rate at which you tra you you transfer radiate heat away into that environment compared to the rate at which you radiate heat away into an ambient temperature that's like room temperature say 20 degrees celsius that's 293 kelvin it's not a huge difference. It's maybe eight times faster, ten times faster, something like that. Um, the rate at which you're radiating heat away into into absolute zero. So although you're going to cool down quicker by radiation, it's not instantaneous. It certainly would take time for you to cool down. You certainly don't wouldn't sort of step out into this vacuum and be immediately frozen because space is somehow cold. The other point about that, the other in, uh, I guess the other important point about that is in fact if you sort of took a, a body whether that be a human body or some other type of body, uh, and you put it into space in sort of Earth orbit, if you like, at the same distance from the sun as the Earth is, then in fact what you've got to remember is that in that sense uh, uh, space isn't cold really, because what's happening is you've got to remember that there's the sunlight impacting your body, incident upon your body, and that's going to heat you up. And actually you can work out um, that if you put a body in space at about the distance of the Earth and you allow for all the radiation it's going to absorb from the the sun, and you assume it absorbs everything that hits it, and then you let that body warm up, and as it warms up, it, it starts to radiate itself. What you do is you work out the point, the temperature at which that body gets to, where there's a balance, where there's an equi equilibrium between the amount of energy being absorbed from the sunlight and the amount of energy being radiated. Uh, and it turns out the, the, the temperature at which you'd 
uh, get that balance is actually about 280 Kelvin or so, so about 7 degrees Celsius, something like that. So in fact, you could just sit any old body in space at the distance of the Earth from the Sun and it would warm up to that temperature if, if it behaves as what we call a black body, which is something that absorbs, is efficient absorber and radiator of radiation. So it's certainly not the case that you would freeze freeze immediately. You wouldn't wouldn't be very nice, of course. <laughs> and the real problem is that is the low pressure, um, and what that happens. What happens to, for example, internal organs in terms of the the decreasing pressure, which would would sort of bloat up. It wouldn't actually cause you to burst. It turns out the skin's actually strong enough for you to resist that sort of. Uh, so you're not going to sort of blow up and explode, as sometimes seen in sci-fi movies. Um, but you would get sort of some bruising and so on as, as certain parts of you sort of inflate as a result of that uh, uh, that decreasing pressure. The real problems are associated with the, the boiling away of water vapour um, and also what happens to the oxygen in your blood. Because basically, as long as you sort of exhale quite quickly to sort of um, stop your lungs rupturing, basically, um, you could sort of uh, survive for, it seems like, maybe 10, 30 seconds or so, maybe be conscious for, 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 for uh, several tens of seconds or so. But then you start to lose oxygen from your blood. And in fact, there's this process where actually, because of the change in pressure, the whole process goes into reverse. So you're actually, you, you get oxygen being extracted out of the, the blood. Um, and it seems that within 10, 20 seconds or so, actually, you'd, you'd, um, go unconscious because of that effect. You wouldn't freeze immediately. You don't cool down that quickly. Um, but it wouldn't be very nice. In terms of what happens on Mars, well, I'm not so sure that, um, you, the, the difference on Mars is, yes, the temperatures, again, it's quite cold on Mars. The important thing, again, though, is that the pressure, the atmospheric pressure on Mars is something like 1% of the Earth's atmospheric pressure. So that's the, I think that's the, the the crucial factor in this case. There's more of a chance of this sort of a uh, little bit more of the chance of conduction or convection being an issue if you're in contact with a cold surface. So you can get a sort of uh, there's more of a chance of flash freezing where you you're in contact with something very cold and that can take away the the heat quicker. Uh, but in general, it's the low pressure that's the problem. Okay, the next question is from Michael Muat. I hope I've got your name your surname right there, Michael. Um, Michael's in Shetland. And he asks, how do Jupiter's satellites generate spots of aurorae at its poles? So, of course, the aurorae um, on the Earth, we know them as the northern lights or the southern lights, the aurora borealis and the aurora australis, so these sort of lights, glowing lights in the sky. Um, and they result from particles, charged particles from the solar wind, streaming away from the sun through the solar system interacting with the Earth's magnetic field, being captured by the Earth's magnetic field, travelling down the magnetic field lines and crashing into the upper atmosphere of the Earth. That interaction excites um, molecules in the in the upper atmosphere of the Earth to higher excitation, higher energy states, and then when they drop back down to lower energies, they emit photons of particular wavelengths that give you the particular colours you see in the in the northern lights. Um, and it's true to say that Jupiter, um, for example, has its own aurora, and there's some gorgeous um, photographs of Jupiter's aurora uh, taken with um, the Hubble Space Telescope, for example, with the ultraviolet camera on the, on the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, and there's also been some great work done on the aurora with um, the flybys of Cassini-Huygens um, and the uh, Galileo uh, spacecraft recently. And yeah, when you look at pictures of, we, we sort of take images of the aurora that are near the uh, the poles of Jupiter, 
um, then you actually see bright spots in these aurorae that sit underneath um, the three of the four of the uh, large Galilean satellites, Io, Ganymede and Europa. Um, the brightest spot is actually uh, sort of underneath Io, uh, and then there's somewhat fainter ones underneath Ganymede and Europa. And actually, as um, as the planet Jupiter rotates underneath um, these these satellites, then these bright spots circle around and sort of follow underneath. They're referred to as the footprints of Io, Ganymede, and Europa at Jupiter. And what it seems is happening is that um, basically, um, as the satellite moves, the, the Jupiter, I should say, has got a very strong magnetic field that extends out um, beyond the orbits of these satellites. So the satellites are orbiting within what's called the magnetosphere, the region of space which is dominated by the magnetic field of the planet Jupiter. So as these uh, satellites move through the magnetosphere of Jupiter, it's like moving a, a conductor through uh, a magnetic field, and that can actually generate an electrical current. And that electrical current um, flows down what's called the flux tube, which is the sort of, um, if you imagine the magnetic field of Jupiter is like the magnetic field of a bar magnet, where you've got a north magnetic pole and a south magnetic pole, and you've got field lines that sort of loop out connecting these poles together. Uh, if you imagine the field lines that sort of exit the somewhere near the North Pole of Jupiter, but at slightly lower latitudes, and head out um, those magnetic fields that go round and through the satellite, and then back round to the other pole uh, of Jupiter. That's the sort of flux tube that that arcs around through the through the satellite. Then you basically get an electric current flowing down that flux tube and entering um, the ionosphere of Jupiter, and it's where that extra charge enters that you get this brighter spot in the aurora uh, of Jupiter and it's not you know it's quite a complicated process it's not it's not fully understood and it seems that in the case of Io it may well be enhanced by um, the fact that Io has all these um, uh, lovely sort of volcanic effects which are pumping um, ions charged particles into the magnetosphere of Jupiter so that looks like that may actually um, enhance the the effect, and also in the in the case of um, of Ganymede, it looks like Ganymede has has its own um, reasonably significant intrinsic magnetic field, and that again may have a, an effect that amplifies this effect slightly for Ganymede. But certainly, um, lovely pictures of of aurora of the sort of northern lights, if you like, northern southern lights on the on the on the planet Jupiter, but also enhanced by their interaction with the satellites as they orbit around within the magnetic field, just like a, a conductor, as a conductor moving in a magnetic field. The next question here is from Sean, who writes in and asks um, that he's very interested in, he's thinking about going to university, he's very interested in um, astrophysics and cosmology, and he wants to know about employment opportunities and advice on what courses to study and so on that would leave him in a good position to apply for such employment. There's actually quite a good website that we'll link to um, from the Jodcast website um, that the Royal Astronomical Society produces that has a, a sort of description on how to become a professional astronomer. In other words, how to get a job that pays you to do astronomy. It's a nice thing to be able to do. How, what you have to study to get that. And the standard route, and, and it's by no means the only route, but it's certainly the majority route, would be to study, make sure you're good at science and maths in particular um, at school, um, and then go on to university um, to study physics typically, um, although there are related sciences that you can also get on to work in astronomy in. For example, it's possible to do chemistry with an astrophysical um, bias, or mathematics particularly, or maybe computer science. 
um, but the, the standard, the majority route would be to go through a physics uh, undergraduate degree, um, then go on to do um, postgraduate research, a PhD, where you work on one particular subject for several years, it varies depending on which country you're, country you're in, but typically uh, something like maybe three to five or six years. Uh, and then beyond that, you usually have to get um, jobs that are relatively short-term research positions where you work on particular tasks for maybe one, two, three years at a time, and then eventually get get uh, to work at a, usually in a university department or in a uh, at an observatory or, or technical establishment. Um, so there are that's the standard route to becoming an, an astronomer. But of course, there are always related jobs that the engineering jobs that relate in the computing jobs that relate in there where you can work within the context of astronomy or astrophysics at, at a related subject without actually being directly and astronomy yourself. So take a look at that. If you're interested in that, take a look at that Royal Astronomical Society website. The last question this month is from John Morell, uh, who's referring back to something that happened during Jodcast Live at Jodrell Bank before Christmas, which unfortunately I missed because I was ill that weekend, but by all accounts was a great day. Um, he says, the explanation of the formation of spiral arms given during Jodcast Live implies that the stars slow down when they join the back of the spiral arm and accelerate as they leave, just like a density wave on a motorway. Where does the force come from that causes the stars to slow down and then accelerate? Well, um, let me just give you the context of this. Um, uh, the problem with spiral arms, as we look at them in spiral galaxies, we see these lovely spiral patterns. But the problem is that um, when we've measured the uh, the speed at which the, the material in the galaxy uh, moves as it orbits the centre of the galaxy, we find that that speed is roughly a constant um, as you move farther and farther away from the centre of the galaxy. Now, um, to understand why that's a problem, um, perhaps let's think about a, a running track. Let's say where we get a set of athletes and we get this nice big circular running track and we start, draw a start line which runs from the middle of the running track out a longer radius towards the outer edge. And we line the athletes up all out along this start line and then we fire the starting gun and we have them all run at exactly the same speed. What would happen is clearly the athlete on the inside has an advantage. Um, to complete one lap, they don't need to run as far as the athlete at the outer edge of the track. And so um, very quickly they sort of spread out as they run around. Um, that effect's called um, differential rotation, and it's, and it's what happens in a spiral galaxy because the rotation speed of the material is roughly a constant as you go out towards the outer edge. Now if you had a spiral pattern that was fixed into the disk of the galaxy, then it would that effect would cause that spiral pattern to very quickly wind up. It would be the spiral would become incredibly tightly wound and effectively disappear. So we don't think that that can be the case. We don't think the spiral pattern can be fixed to the stars and the disk. And the and the common, the sort of most plausible explanation we have at the moment to explain this away is the spiral density wave model where in fact the spiral pattern is not fixed into the stars and the gas and the dust. It's a wave that the stars, the gas and the dust can move through. Um, and the analogy that was given in Jodcast Live for this is a good one, which relates to something I'm sure you've all experienced, which is um, if you're driving along on a motorway, on a highway, um, and then there's some sort of traffic jam, you see the brake lights go on in the car in front of you and you put your brakes on, you all slow down, all the cars bunch up, and sometimes it's not even caused by anything, but maybe it's caused by an accident or even uh, something on the other side of the highway that people are slowing down to look at. 
you all slow down, you go through this region of increased density of cars, and then you accelerate away again out the other side. And I guess if you imagine being in a helicopter and looking down at this from above, you would see this sort of bunching up of cars, this increasing car density. And that, that bunching up could actually be moving along the motorway in the direction of the cars travel, but the cars would actually be moving into the back of it and then out of the other side of it. Or it could even be stationary or perhaps even moving backwards against the along the motorway against the direction of the, the motion of the cars. But the fundamental point of that analogy is that the cars move relative to that bunching, that increase in the density of cars. And that's what we think is happening with the spiral density wave pattern. It's an increase in the density of the gas, for example, that's moving around the galaxy. And as the gas is compressed, it can actually form a trigger star formation, form new stars. You get a mix, a mix of low mass stars and high mass stars. The high mass stars are very bright and, and often quite blue. When you look at the spiral galaxy, you'll see the brightest stars most obviously. So you see those bright stars where star formations occurred recently, which will be along this spiral pattern, along this density wave. You'll also see the sort of pinkish um, regions of, of ionized gas around the regions of star formation, these so-called H2 regions. So you, you notice the spiral arms where the star formations occurred recently, um, and it's that that's moving around the galaxy. The stars actually, typically the stars are moving um, faster than the spiral density wave, so they actually enter the back of it and then they go out the other side. Now with this particular question that John had, he, he was worried because he was thinking about the analogy of the traffic jam and he's thinking, well, in the traffic jam, um, you slow down as you approach the back of this density wave and you accelerate as you go out the front of it. And he's thinking, well, how does that work for stars? What causes them to slow down as they approach the back? Well, in fact, that's where, you know, that analogy really breaks down in that, in this case, because if, if anything, what would happen is that there's a mass concentration in the spiral density wave. And as the stars and the gas and the dust approach the back of it, they'd feel a slightly stronger gravitational force and they'd accelerate into the back of it. And actually, as they came out the other side, the mass concentration would be behind them and they would then slow down as they came out, they come out the other side. But the, the crucial thing about the analogy is to do with the fact that a, a wave, the material can actually move through a wave. It isn't necessarily, it isn't fixed to the material itself. And that's what solves the problem with differential rotation and the winding up of spiral arms. Okay, that's it for this month. Um, if you've got any more questions you'd like answered, we'll do our best. And if you can send them in through the usual route, that'd be great. Speak to you again next month. Thanks for that, Tim. Over to listener feedback. We've had quite a few responses to the last few shows, actually. They've all sort of appeared en masse in the last few weeks. Let's go over to the forum. Neil, do you want to tell us what, what's been said in the forum? Yeah, sure. So, um, Rapid Eyes made a mention about a great interview with, uh, Nancy for the 365 day podcast. So, um, apparently he signed up to do four days, um, which got renewed. And apparently he misses hearing Stu at the end of uh, each podcast this year. He'd also like to know if any other of us, um, have actually signed up for that. Yes, I've got one that will come out on the 21st of January and another one down for the 1st of June as well. And if any Jodcast listeners are contributing episodes, then please do let us know in advance and then we can mention it on the Jodcast. A few unit mentions, um, he liked the Newbury interview, so thanks for another great show, he says. He'd also like to try to get into uh, Twitter more. And apparently, if you like at the universe today, um, you should have a look at the Portal to the Universe. Actually, Portal to the Universe is a really excellent website. It was made for the International Year of Astronomy, and it contains all the news press releases from pretty much every telescope and observatory on the planet, all in one place. And it brings together all the astronomy-related blogs and all the astronomy-related podcasts, so... If you want space and astronomy news, it's the place to go. So that's www.portaltotheuniverse.org. 
It's made writing the Jogcast news a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> he also mentions uh, the live shows as well, saying thanks again for all the interviews, news and humour. John on. I think there's a lot of people still listening, who haven't listened to the live shows. They're still catching up with previous episodes. Yeah, Neil. Hey. <laughs> you cut that out. <laughs> John the Oak mentions Jen's interview uh, in the Astro Bunker in Newbury. Um, apparently which he was just giggling for the majority of the time. Yeah, it was part giggling and part I was so cold because we had to turn the heater off so that we wouldn't get background noise and it was freezing. There was so much snow outside and I was just shaking and kind of giggling to to stop the shaking. <laughs> but Adrian is also very funny. And he also mentions uh, some applications you can get for your iPhone. So there's plenty out there if you just go into the iPhone store. And uh, yeah, there's plenty of stuff for the Astro stuff, like meaty showers and other stuff like that, which you can get informed on. And thanks to JR Edge and everyone else who's com- contributed on the forum. And over to Twitter. Yes, over on Twitter we've had comments from the Bishop of Twit, who said, just listened to a fantastic interview on the January Jodcast featuring Newbury Astronomical Society. Uh, John Manifold, who said, I've just listened to the Jodcast about Newbury. I've never used a thing, but I'm going to give it a go. And EO has just realised that they've been following the Jodcast for over four years now. That's scary. Uh, yes, it's scary for us too. On Facebook, we had a message from Claire Elaine Smith, who put a link to Twist, which is a website that you can go on and you can find when the International Space Station is going to be passing over you. So that's www.twist.nl. And you can also follow them on Twitter and they will tweet at you when there's going to be a pass. So over on the email, we've got another email from uh, John Manifold, who's apparently just caught up with the December Extra show. Um, better than Neil here. Yeah, okay, that's enough. <laughs> Getting around to it. And he mentions uh, Nick Rattenbury's interview with Sir Francis Graham Smith, the uh, former uh, Astronomer Royal, and mentions just uh, how good Nick really is with interviewing. Yeah, I think we all really miss Nick at the moment. Yeah, we do. Definitely. <laughs> Come back, Nick. <laughs> and John Sullivan just wanted to say that he really enjoys the Jogcast and appreciates all the work that goes into putting them together. And we've had a few things in the post. We actually had a few things before Christmas, and they unfortunately missed the January episode because we were all away. So we had a Christmas card from Jason Hill saying, To all at the Jodcast, best wishes and thanks for your hard work. And thank you very much, Jason, for the for the Christmas card. And thank you also for the amazing first day covers that you sent from Guernsey Post, which are six stamps which contain various images of space. So there's asteroids, there's the planet Earth, there's the sun, there's an eclipse, and there's the planet Jupiter. And they're really nice. And he sent us to them on an envelope, which is very nice of him. And we had a postcard from Switzerland from Mayek Michik, who says, here's the latest photo from Mars. Um, love the show. I listen at work on headphones. And I've now exhausted all the archives. And actually, it's not uh, an image of Mars. I don't think we're going to be fooled. That's actually a nice picture of Switzerland with a rather... <laughs> red sunset happening and lighting up the, the snow. But it does vaguely look like Mars. It would be an astronomer's dream, though, to find something like that on Mars. <laughs> there is a um, a glacier on that image, and there have been some avalanches recently on Mars, but not with water ice snow. Um, but anyway, so it looks a bit like Mars, although the large clouds and blue sky <laughs> sort of give it away. And that brings us to the end of our feedback for this episode. Remember, you can get in touch with us via the website at www.jodcast.net. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook. And on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast.
So that brings us to the end of the show. So it just leaves us to say thank you to Stuart Ayres for the interview and thank you to Adam Averson for editing the interview. So until next time, jod on. Bye. 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 Bye.